everyone. This is Patricia Martin, host of Young in the World. And today I'm launching a new series on Jungian theory and the digital culture. And I'm so glad you're here to explore some of these ideas that really go back to Jung's later writings. And he pondered the question of technology and society and openly wondered what it might mean for humankind. In the Collected Works, Volume 18, for instance, Jung wrote, quote, In general, it can be said that for modern man, technology is an imbalance that begets dissatisfaction with work or life. It estranges man from his natural versatility of action and thus allows many of his instincts to lie fallow, unquote. Given that the collective is ever more reliant on technology than it was back in 1949 when Jung wrote about it, it's a good time to reconsider the effects it's having on our psyches. This is rich territory for us. We live in a symbolic life online, for instance. We, we use emojis and avatars. We confess publicly our shadow material. And we share bits of our individuation process on YouTube, Instagram, and in blogs. We exist both virtually and in real life. So what does that mean for Carl Jung's idea of wholeness, for instance? He believed that the real human experience consists of opposites that need to be united within our souls, and that that unification is what we're here to pursue in life. Yet, as Jung imagined the future, he saw that technology had the power to disunify. In this context, how do we make constructive use of the digital tools at our disposal, for example. In this series, we take on these questions and more. I will interview Jungian scholars, philosophers, and members of the Technorati about the new conditions of identity and wholeness in this age. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for tuning in, and I'm excited to share this series. Today, I'm thrilled to be talking with author Megan O'Geeblin, whose award-winning books and essays raise questions about the relationship between machines and humans. Her most recent book, God, Human, Animal, Machine, considers the future of the self. The New York Times called it a thoughtful meditation on technology, humanity, and religion. When I read the book, I was struck by the case it makes for the validity of the self in an age of hyper-reinvention and artificial intelligence. Megan also writes a lovely column in Wired Magazine that is part spiritual, part tech, and part personal advice. Welcome, Megan O'Geeblin. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. I realized, uh, you know, as I was uh, preparing for this and I was ginning up some questions to ask you, uh, I, I reviewed them this morning. And I thought, wow, this is really heavy. And <laughs> I'm glad you weren't put off by it. But <laughs> no, I get that know, a lot. People, yeah. Yeah. Do you get that a lot? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, the topics that I'm writing about consciousness, you know, deep learning algorithms, technology, it's, it's difficult to write about it for a popular audience. I think that's part of the challenge and part of the fun for me. Well, I can definitely say that some of the questions that you raise in your writing, um, they, especially around consciousness, that's, you know, such an important uh, juncture 
for Jungians, this relationship between the unconscious and the conscious. And it's hard for Jungians to imagine that in a world where people's um, sensibilities are being swamped by technology and social media and where um, our role as human beings is, is starting to be usurped by certain functionality like artificial intelligence, that, that it wouldn't have bring some sort of reckoning to the relationship between the soul, you know, and, um, you know, the soul and the mind, the, the psyche. So, and the conscious and our consciousness and our unconsciousness. So that's what brought you here. Yeah, I know. Well, that's something that, I mean, I've been thinking about, um, you know, for many years and throughout the writing of this book, it's just like, what is technology just for me on a personal level? What is it doing to myself and my experience of, of being human? Um, you know, and I think that there, there is, um, a lot of ways in which I think everyone feels that intuitively, whether it's something like, you know, the fact that our attention is less robust maybe than it was a few years ago, or um, maybe, you know, we tend to feel more removed from life as opposed to feeling rooted in it, you know, just given how much of our lives are spent today on screens. Um, but I was also interested, I guess, in a, sort of the more insidious ways in which uh, technologies and particularly technological metaphors are actually changing our conception of human nature and, and what it means to be human. Um, so something, for example, I guess one of the metaphors that I talk about in the book is the brain computer metaphor. So this idea that the mind is essentially software that's running on the hardware of the mind. Um, and this is a metaphor that is, it's not particularly new. It goes back to the 1940s. Um, it was really foundational to cognitive science and artificial intelligence. And, you know, we use it, even people who don't know anything about neuroscience, for example, we use it all the time in everyday speech. We say that we're, you know, processing new information that's using a computational metaphor to talk about the mind, um, and I think that to some extent, we we use this kind of language and we, we forget that it's metaphorical. We really start to believe on some level that our minds are machines or that they're perhaps merging with our machines in some way. And um, I guess the thing that, that I was most curious about is how is that limiting our understanding of human nature? You know, when you talk about the mind as a computer, you're talking primarily about the intellect. You're not talking about, you know, a human's emotional life or the unconscious or all of these other things that, you know, have a very rich intellectual history themselves. Um, and so I think that a lot of times when we talk about ourselves through the lens of these technologies or start to see ourselves through those lenses, we're sort of leaving out, you know, hugely important parts of, of our, our human experience. I, and I have to also say as part of what we're failing to embrace, you know, the the aspects of the self that are really difficult to replicate. I mean, I, I wonder, is it really achievable to think that as sophisticated as artificial intelligence is and potentially will become, can it ever replicate consciousness? Well, yeah, there's a big debate about that. I mean, the, the difficult thing is that we don't even know what consciousness is, you know, I mean, from a scientific standpoint, the, you know, the fact that we have first person experiences humans that we can see colors and hear sounds and that we hold, you know, beliefs and ideas in 
on one, in one sense, it's really the most, you know, foundational part of our experience. It's something we take for granted. And it's also one of the most profound mysteries of, of science and philosophy. Um, so, you know, the notion that I think we can create machines that are conscious, it does seem kind of mystical. Um, but there are theories, you know, um, particularly I talk in the book about this idea of, of emergence, um, which is the idea that, you know, sometimes, um, you know, thinking about artificial intelligence, for example, if you're creating an artificial mind, you don't necessarily have to know um, what you're doing. Oftentimes when you're working with algorithms, for example, that evolve, so machine learning algorithms, um, you don't have to teach them rules about what to do. You essentially feed these algorithms tons and tons of data and they sort of evolve their own patterns and their own um, strategies based on the data that they're fed. And they often end up evolving in really unexpected ways. And um, we've seen this, you know, with language algorithms. So um, algorithms that are taught how to write basically, or that they learn how to write from being fed tons and tons of human writing. Sometimes they'll unexpectedly develop other skills, like one of them, um, which is called GPT-3, a big language model. It spontaneous lear spontaneously learned how to do math just because there were so many mathematical concepts in the training data <laughs> that it was fed. And so there's always this possibility that the machines can develop in ways that even their designers didn't intend. And um, so there's a theory that, you know, maybe consciousness is just some sort of higher level process that is going to sort of unexpectedly emerge in these machines as, as we continue building them. And that to me feels like a very different, um, or it feels like it diverges from how we typically talk about the relationship between a creator and creation, mm -hmm. particularly in like a modern framework. It almost goes back to these old, like the idea of alchemy, you know, or you can sort of put these two substances together and it might create something entirely new. And you see a lot of these older sort of mystical ideas, I think, emerging um, in artificial intelligence where it, it does seem as though there's a point at which the creator is not totally in control. I think that you, I love the fact that you, you know, use the metaphor of alchemy. It's something that, especially in his later years, Carl Jung took to this concept um, because it was useful in describing the way one thing translates into another thing, becomes a third thing, but that it is a, a process. And each step of that process is sort of a, a washing, you know, a muddying, a cleansing, a shining. And it makes me wonder if here he was, right, this pioneer of psychology, and he and Freud are trying to write in about these abstract concepts. So they're using, you know, he, Jung is using things like uh, myth and fairy tales and um, alchemy to explain something that is fundamentally very, very difficult to explain. So it's interesting to me that we're doing the same with technology. We're having to rely on really old school ideas about how things work. Is that something to, that you think, you know, has its own trajectory? Like, oh, once we get past that language stage, we're going to fly? Or do you think that this is more slowly evolutionary? Uh, it's hard to tell just because, yeah, there are so many unknowns and, uh, you know, um, 
AI is still itself in its infancy. It's only, you know, several decades old still. So, um, you know, the, the, the way in which these systems are advancing, um, it, it's difficult to say. So I was really struck by the charming references that you make to Kurzweil's work you know, who has been really bold, a bold pioneer in talking about the relationship between man and technology, you know, people in technology. And, you know, he, he wrote that book, uh, The Age of the of Spiritual Machines. And I, I've read it, but I cannot tell you that I fully grasped it. I, I would be lying if I said so. What, what do you think is meant by the age of spiritual machines? Yeah, I similarly had, um, I, I had a similar reaction the first time I encountered that book, um, which was in, you know, the early 2000s, it was short, shortly after it was published. And um, I was completely blown away. That was really my introduction to a lot of these uh, more speculative uh, uh, technological concepts like transhumanism. Um, and he, Kurzweil was really just so far ahead of a lot, even among other futurists, I think, in, in seeing where technology was heading. And um, the, the term, the age of spiritual machines, he's referring basically to a coming era. I think he would argue that we're already in that era now, to some extent, um, where we're going to start merging as humans with technology. And so, you know, this basically would start with um, well, to some extent, we already do this now where we use, you know, cochlear implants, artificial hip replacements, we're bionic in some sense, we rely on these, these technologies that are very intimately integrated into our, our bodies. Um, and so eventually, he saw this evolving to the point where we're implanting computer chips into our brain, and then maybe we'll even be able to upload our brains to computers. So the age of spiritual machines is, is essentially this new era of humanity. Um, in which we're going to use technology to further our evolution into another species or what he calls post-humanity. So this idea that um, I, I take spiritual machines to, to mean machines that are conscious or machines that have some sort of essential part of our humanity um, contained in them. And, um, you know, I, th there's ways in which too, I think this might be another aspect of our our evolution as humans that's happening at such a gradual pace we haven't we don't recognize it all the time um you know even if you want to extend the idea to like how we rely on computers and phones to fill in the gaps in our memory you know it's not necessary to have things memorized the way we used to because we you can just google it so we're offloading um in subtle ways our cognitive functions onto these devices that we use every day we're using them to extend our knowledge, extend our memories. And at times it's really difficult to tell like where your biological self ends and where your digital self begins. I think that's especially true in even just trying to memorize a poem. Like I, yeah. right. I, I had a friend say, why don't you, why don't you memorize that, that poem from William Butler Yeats? And I, I legitimately set to work on it thinking, oh yeah, I, I should. And then I would be able to quote that at will. Oh my God. Just the idea of like implanting those words in my mind turned out to be a Herculean task. I, I was stunned at how I, I just didn't have the muscle for that up there anymore. 
Yeah. Well, we're not used to ask that. To, we're not asked to use that muscle anymore, really. No. I mean, I was the same as a child. I, you know, I grew up in a very religious family and I had large passages of the Bible memorized as a child. Um, but yeah, I don't, I can't think of the last time I memorized um, something or that I needed to. It's really becoming an obsolete skill. It is. You know, I can't help but kind of probe into your childhood a little bit because you're, you know, um, what I want to say, Megan, is that you have a brain that seems to synthesize what would be otherwise disparate things like technology and spirituality. And so that always makes me wonder, okay, who is this person? What was their upbringing? How did the self form in such a way that, that you have these perspectives? How, how, where would you begin to answer that? Well, I guess um, I grew up in what I would call a fundamentalist Christian family. We believed, you know, that the Bible was the word of God, that Christ was going to return possibly in our lifetime. Um, I was pretty isolated as a child. I was um, homeschooled up until 10th grade, and most of my social life revolved around a small religious community and and our church. Um, And I went to... um, a Bible school, small conservative Bible school, um, when I was 18 and studied theology and had intended to become a missionary. Um, and then I ended up having a crisis of faith, uh, after my second year of Bible school and, um, ended up leaving the school. And then shortly after that, leaving Christianity and I sort of started identifying as an atheist. Um, throughout that time, I, hadn't really thought much about technology or I wasn't interested in it. You know, I think that the, the tradition in which I was raised, it was this very millenarian end times, you know, theology where if anything, technology was sort of bound up in this very dystopian idea that, you know, it was going to bring about the apocalypse and the end of the world and, and all of that. Um, but it was actually shortly after I, uh, left Christianity that I first encountered that Ray Kurzweil book, The Age of Spiritual Machines, and um, just became fascinated in technology initially as, as just a, a personal curiosity, um, you know, and I think a lot of that was because, you know, the ideas that were really in um, the culture and tech criticism at the time, these ideas about how humanity was going to be transformed by technology, how technology was going to bring about a new era it was um, in strange ways, like a, a reflection of a lot of the, the prophecies that I had studied in the Bible, you know, this idea that Christ was going to return at some point, um, that, you know, our bodies were going to be radically transformed and glorified, that we would, you know, be able to achieve eternal life. Um, all of those promises were, you know, around the turn of the millennium, things that people were looking to technology to, uh, to enact and bring about. And, um, so yeah, I started writing, um, about technology. I wrote essays in in tech criticism for several years. And, and this book, this last book really grew out of my noticing that there was so many conversations, contemporary uh, conversations about emerging technologies, about artificial intelligence, about the internet that were evoking concepts that I had studied uh, you know, as an aspiring theologian. 
So ideas about the future, but also, you know, sort of fears about AI becoming godlike or AI taking on sort of a godlike omniscient role in our lives and us having to submit to um, technology the same way that we had once had to submit to God without questioning, you know, on faith. And um, so the book was really, I guess, an attempt to try to trace those those ideas and put them in conversation with them, with one another and maybe see if, you know, what are the lineage of these ideas? You know, what is the history of people talking about technology and, and religion in the same breath, which we don't often hear those terms spoken of in the same breath, but there, there is a, a deep uh, history of, of thinkers who have put those ideas in conversation with one another. And so it was really fascinating to, to learn about that history in more detail. So I wonder if you feel that in looking at that history and and I know you went as far back as Descartes to you know look at the hard questions that have been asked um, that are door openers to another consciousness about how man and machine you know people and machines interact but I I'm really curious to know what is happening to our sense of will in this? In other words, yeah, we're, we're, there's a little bit of jealousy about what machines can do, what technology can do. We're feeling a little displaced by it. We're destabilized by this. Some people are being put out of jobs and entire careers. And I, I wonder if what's really happening in the collective is a sort of unconscious surrender to the reality that we are going to end up being submissive to the machines that we in fact have created and what that's really doing to us. Yeah. Well, there's been a lot of discussion about just that question, um, particularly when it comes to um, a type of algorithm called deep learning algorithms, which I don't want to get too technical, but basically <laughs> they're um, algorithms that are able to um, make predictions very accurately. They're used in finance and medicine diagnosis in medical diagnoses. Um, they're used in the justice system to help determine people's uh, prison sentences or whether uh, somebody gets parole or not. And um, basically these are black box algorithms. So people don't, even the people who design them don't understand how they reach their decisions. The amount of data that they're processing is just far too complex. Uh, to be able to understand exactly all the inferences that they're drawing, but they are very accurate. And so um, there's been, you know, a few cases, some of which have become, you know, sort of high prof profile news stories where somebody, for example, is given um, a prison sentence or a medical diagnosis and they say, well, I want to know, you know, because an algorithm was used in this decision, how did the algorithm reach that conclusion? And nobody can, t can tell them why. They just have to sort of accept it. They say, we don't know how this thing works. <laughs> but basically, it's, it's usually very accurate. And so we're going to base the decision on that. And when, these, um, when this technology sort of reached the level of public awareness, which was around 2016, 2017, there was, I, I came across actually in the same week, two different tech critics who, were, who had compared these algorithms to the book of Job. And, um, you know, the story of, of Job is that he is, you know, inflicted with suffering, um, 
that he comes down with, you know, diseases and boils, his whole family is killed, and he asks God, why am I suffering? And um, God basically answers by saying, I'm far, you know, superior to you. There's no way you can understand my ways. I understand the universe far more than you. You just have to accept this um, on faith. That was the way I was introduced to that story, at least um, as a student of theology. And there is a way in which, yeah, these, um, you know, algorithms are also requiring people to sort of accept their output as pure revelation you know, just accept it on faith. And I think as they become more powerful, it, it is in a way returning us to this very old, essentially religious question of, you know, how do we as humans contend with this force that is supposedly more intelligent than us or, or you know, has more knowledge than we do? And yet, what happens when it starts to conflict with our morals and our values as humans? Um, and... I know that that's a that's a book that Jung has written about as as well. Um, oh, the answer to Job. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's actually it's, one of my favorite. A, it's books great. Because, yeah, uh, but we it it is commonly talked about in 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 this kind of way. In that, uh, what what Carl Jung ended up saying is this is a horrible story. That, yeah, that this poor man is you know he's sat upon by every horrible event and malady that any human being could ever, you know, survive. And it's done at the hand of the father, you know, someone who's meant to feel a certain alliance and love, in fact, for his creation. But maybe Jung and his comment on Job is more useful now in this moment, as if to say, wait a minute, we're, we're as humans still writing this narrative. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And there's that there's a possibility. I I hope I remember his conclusion correctly, but that, that possibly humans are more conscious than God is or, or have sort of a superior morality, you know, and this idea was, was something you know, I didn't have, this is also a book that I, I struggled with when I was studying theology, and it really was crucial to my own unraveling of my faith. And I hadn't read Jung at the time, but I did have that sense that, you know, the, the hero in that book is Job. You know, as a human, you're rooting for him as the human hero. He's the one who has the superior moral case. Um, and yet there is this force that seems largely unconscious that is somehow, you know, claiming to be more powerful uh, than, than humans. And yeah, in a way the technology is sort of evoking that, you know, that story, I think for a lot of people or that it's sort of bringing it up, um, back into, into our cultural awareness. Well, just in terms of, you know, what, what else is maybe not in our cultural awareness, but should be because it, it's a projection. All mythology is, is a projection from the from the collective, meaning we're, we're all sort of in need of, of a certain kind of story or stories that, you know, that help us survive. You know, you, you, you can read Odysseus and say, oh, this is what it's like to undergo trial after trial or psyche. Um, you know, she's faced with trial after trial. And, and in fact, what needs, she needs to do is call on spiritual guidance. And that's what unlocks so many of these trials. But I'm thinking in particular to Google's really 
early forays into artificial intelligence when what they did is they set their machines up to consume the Western canon. And that was going to be the brain and everything would be filtered through that. Well, what we know now is the Western canon, it, it tells the story of a certain gender and a certain class of human being and a certain experience of human being. And while those, those are archetypal stories, they're still limited to a certain segment of, of the species. And so therein lies its flaw to a certain extent, because that's the bedrock from which they built everything else in the brain. I, you know, it it gives me hope, I guess, is what I'm really kind of rooting for, (laughs) Megan, is that we still have a say in this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that's, that's the, the really, you know, important thing about this time right now is that we do still have a say in it. We are still in control. We haven't handed everything over to machines. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating to, to think about, you know, Google and, and language models, like you said, that these algorithms that have like consumed the entire canon of basically everything that humans have written, you know, we've we've fed the entire internet, including all these books that are uploaded to the internet into these algorithms. And, you know, once it's just been in the past few years that these, you know, algorithms have been taken such huge leap forwards and being able to write stories themselves and sort of create their own narratives based on everything that they consumed. And um, I, you know, wrote a, an essay a few years ago about these language models, and I was just fascinated by the stories that they produced. Um, you would basically just give them a prompt and say, you know, tell me a fairy tale or write me a short story. And they produce this text that sounds very much like a human wrote them and, and sound like a lot of existing human stories. You know, they, they are entirely original, but they have this almost universal, maybe archetypal quality to them. They have all the tropes of human stories. You know, there's sort of the unlikely hero, there's transformation, atonement, and nobody explicitly taught them those narrative tropes. They just, you know, stems from the fact that they they consume so much writing and they learned the conventions and the symbolism of our stories through those examples. Um, and it's yeah, kind of eerie, isn't it? It is, it is eerie. It's really eerie, especially, you know, if you think about the fact that they are unconscious themselves, that they don't know what they're saying. It's almost like it is this instantiation of the collective unconscious that they're, you know, drawing from this vast reservoir of human experience, you know, our, our entire history of narrative. Um, and then creating these stories that enact those deep structures that, you know, keep keep appearing in so much of our literature. Um, and yeah, I mean, some some of what they produce also, I mean, they it contains the the good, the bad, and the ugly of, of human nature. Also, they one problem with these algorithms is that they have a tendency to reproduce a lot of stereotypes, and they can even be prompted to produce hate speech if you give them a prompt. You know, they've read all of Reddit and 4chan and you know Twitter, mm-hmm. so they they've picked up everything. And so there is, you know, I guess returning to that theme of humans being in control. There's been a lot of talk lately about how to sort of um, filter, either filter the training data or create safeguards so that they don't reproduce um, that that side of um, of what they've consumed. But it gets very tricky. I think you know there's going to be a lot of a lot of um, obstacles before these algorithms are widely accepted as commercial products. So I think what would I, I could never say how Jung might react to that, but 
he was a proponent of embracing the shadow as mm. well as the light in all of us, because therein lies balance. Right. And when we become unconscious of the shadow material is when it will project itself, whether we like it or not, you know, I mean, you can look back at, you know, recent political history and see, you know, shadow characters in full regalia. And, yes. you know, it's, it's because we, we didn't want to see something as a collective in ourselves. And so it makes me wonder sometimes if, you know, the entire web, all that content, all that thought, all those voices, I, I think about hashtag me too, where that was, you know, worldwide, thousands of women telling one story. That's unprecedented. And so is this, is the web just a, a projection of the collective? Is this something we needed because we had to be heard in this, what is going to become a more and more machine age? I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, in thinking about that sort of the dual nature and 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 the you know the shadow of of human nature, it, it is interesting that you know I think from the early days of the web, it was seen as this unilateral like positive development. You know that the, it's going to uh, make you know public discourse more democratic. That it's going to give voice to people, and it and it has done all of those things. You know, and you think about even the way people were talking about Twitter during the early days of the Arab Spring. That you know this oh, is going yeah. to yeah bring about revolutions and just all of this very very positive language. And then it very quickly tilted. Um, you know, several years ago to sort of, oh, well, the, these platforms also have this dark side that they're giving voice to extremists and radicals and that, you know, there's all sorts of um, infiltration from foreign actors. And it's almost like the the public sentiment about technology went did a total 180. Right. <laughs> and now it's, it's, it's the dark sides of our human nature that it's showing. And I, I think you're right that it is definitely a mirror that it's, you know, technology is something that amplifies um, you know, our tendencies as humans and that it's going to show both the good and the bad. And I think that, you know, we have a tendency, at least tech critics, maybe I'll, I'll limit it to tech critics have a tendency <laughs> to uh, focus on just one dimension of that, you know. Um, but yeah, it is it is um, definitely showing us our, our full natures and all their, their good and their bad. I wondered about that for you. You write about spirituality and you write about technology. And I'm thinking those are two really different tribes. <laughs> so are 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 you a woman without a country? Or <laughs> do you do you do you straddle both? Are you a bigger weirdo in one than you are in another? How does that work? Yeah, I do often feel like a woman without a country. That's a good way to put it. Um yeah, it's it's been interesting to see the reaction to the book, you know, I've done some interviews um, and talks with technology podcasts with technology publications. And then I've done some uh, talks with religious organizations too. And I'm always surprised, you know, by, I, I anticipated that people who are interested in technology would, would, you know, be into my writing, but I'm always surprised by how receptive religious people are toward it as well, just because a lot of um, the book is somewhat critical toward religion or at least toward Christianity toward the sort of the, the fundamentalist iteration of Christianity in which I was raised but 
I think um, a lot of religious people have been interested in the book just because they're so eager for, you know, somebody who's talking about technology and spirituality. I think that is, you know, like you said, it's a, it's a rare um, for somebody to talk about those in the same breath. And it is in a way, I think, you know, the hunger for that connection between those two ideas, I think is itself a product of how isolated and tribal our media landscape has become, you know, the fact that like, you know, when I go on Twitter, I have like, you know, a corner of people who are talking about technology that I follow. And then, you know, there's sort of a, another group of people that are talking about religion. And as far as I can tell, there's not any sort of discourse between them. <laughs> and um, I think everybody, you know, has experienced this to some extent if you're on social media where, you know, you realize at some point, like if you're talking to even your closest friends and family members, that they're seeing completely different news stories from you, that they're getting different Google results than you. Um, so yeah, there is a way in which I think our conversation about technology itself is very fractured and it tends to happen in really insular circles. And this has been a problem, particularly when it comes to AI research, like it's very difficult to get a lot of public attention drummed up, mm -hmm. um, and to get any sort of like mass, you know, political momentum about regulation and things like that, just because, if you're not tuned in to that particular channel, um, you're probably not paying attention to it. And it's unfortunate because I do think that, you know, technology and conversations about technology would benefit from a wide range of opinions. It would, you know, benefit from, you know, psychology and from spirituality, from religion. Um, these are all questions that are being raised by the technologies themselves, but unfortunately they're, you know, being discussed and, and their futures being determined by people who have a very limited knowledge base. Well, I think that's the value of your book and it's the value of your point of view, Megan, is that, uh, and I'll go ahead and say this. I think the thing after I read your work that I admire about it is that you have the guts to be both people to be the, 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 the searcher and, and the soulful chronicler of our times, and also the person who finds technology exciting and compelling and scary and useful, but, you know, it's still taking us into the future. So you're, this fact that you can speak with both voices, I think, is essential right now to our current moment. And, and with that in mind, I, I wonder, you know, the, the collective is just like anything else. I mean, it, the collective also has an ego and the ego wants to do something. What can we do as, a, as citizens to, to, you know, to be better, to, to, to improve this environment that feels so often like it's thrust on us and we're out of control? What can we do? I think the most important thing, and in many ways, it's uh, the most difficult thing is to be conscious, you know, in every sense of the word about how we're using technology. I think a lot of the devices and the platforms uh, and the services that we're using just on a daily basis, they really rely on user passivity. You know, you re they rely on people just sort of clicking yes to user agreements or not taking the time to research or look at, you know, how your data is being used, how your privacy is being violated. Um, all of those things that are becoming really, you know, crucial to, to be, you know, to pay attention to in this 
landscape. Um, you know, and, and it's funny, I just got, um, I, for my wired advice column, somebody wrote in a question about, um, using dumb phones, like stripping down your smartphone. <laughs> and this is something that I've been doing for years. And, uh, you know, it's uh, sort of embarrassing because I, I write so much about technology, but I try to keep my own uh, technology use very minimal just because I do notice that it, it affects my ability to think and engage um, in a more sustained way. But um, yeah, you know, there's, there's so many things you can do to, you know, just on a, on a, daily level to, to limit your exposure to those really addictive feeds and, um, you know, the incentives that the platforms give you to continue, you know, to maximize engagement, to keep you on them as long as possible. Um, so yeah, and I, I have several friends who have sort of stripped down their, their phones to, you know, removing the internet and removing all the, um, social media and, and news apps and sort of just using it as, as a phone, that's just one example, but there's a lot of ways in which you can, you know, modify and, and sort of take control of your own devices without being completely disconnected, which I think is becoming increasingly unrealistic for a lot of people. But I think you're right. All of this is just a way to claw back a certain level of consciousness. Yeah. Because um, I think that's really what's for sale. You know, our, our attention spans, attention yes. is at some level a form of consciousness. And when we you know, willy nilly winnow it away. It's very hard to get it back, and mm-hmm. um, and and that 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 just feels like a perfect Jungian way to end our conversation. Again, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's, yeah, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about training programs, archives, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, jungchicago.org. Thank you to our 2021 donors who gave at the contributing member level or above. The Arlene M. Feiner Trust, Barbara Anon, Arlo and Rena Compan, Judith Cooper, Kevin Davis, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, Carl and Patricia Greer, Ryan Mayer, Patricia Martin, Boris Matthews, Sue Rosenthal, Diane Sherwood, Debbie Stutzman, Lawrence Chad Tingley, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Kopp, Gerald Weiner, and Ellen Young. You can also become a supporter of this podcast by visiting our website, youngchicago.org. Thanks. Thanks.